any asset that you can put on a shelf and show and have a story about, I think is super dope, right? So like vinyl, vinyl editions are like that. Photography is like that. Art is like that. Books is, are, are like that. So I, I'm just a fan of objects. I love having pieces everywhere. So here we are, another week, episode four of The Best Money I Ever Spent, presented by Rally. This week, someone I've had huge respect for way before I officially met him, Jeff Carvalho. Jeff's probably best known as the co-founder of High Snobiety, which is currently on this multi-decade run as one of the most successful news and media properties covering streetwear and fashion, sneakers, art, basically everything in modern collecting culture. But Jeff has also been at the heart of some of the most important cultural trends here in the US and abroad, basically his entire career. And that's everything from media to tech to having been one of the biggest early creators on the app Clubhouse at its peak. And we talk a bit about that and his role during that epic run during the pandemic and what he believes the future of that app looks like. We also talk about his new project, Barada. We talk Web3. We talk $40,000 pairs of jeans. We talk about the nostalgia of the golden age of streetwear, everything in between. As always, as a disclaimer before we start, nothing on this episode should be considered financial advice. You shouldn't make any decision, financial, investment, trading, or otherwise, based on any of the information presented here without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with an investment advisor. And with that, episode four of The Best Money I Ever Spent, presented by Rally, with the guy who a lot of people rely on to answer the question, what's next? Jeff Carvalho. Jeff, what's up, my friend? What's going on? How's New York? New York is good, man. New York misses you, dude. I'll be honest with you. That was um. You're, so for anyone for anyone listening to Jeff is someone who's like a, he's a New York guy. I look at him as a New York guy and part of New York culture in a very specific way. But he did the uh, he did what I would consider the right thing. He got out of here, man. He went to Miami when it got cold and there was a lot more going on down there. I think for tech and for Web three, that became kind of a hub. And I think that in New York, we look at it. This is kind of my first question, too, I wanted to get into, is what's happening in Miami right now with Web3 and with tech, is this a, is it real right now? Or is this something that you feel like is a moment? And I feel like for you, somebody who's really able to forecast trends and really knows the difference between a moment versus something that's real, do you see it being a real thing and that 10 years from now we'll all be in Miami building tech? Or is this just a right now moment? What do you think? I mean, it's a good question. I, you know, my... My family and I moved down here about nine, ten months ago. We actually had planned to move here before before COVID hit, and um, COVID hit. And instead of you know making our way down here, we actually you know locked down in New York, and then we, we locked down upstate for a while. And I think during that time, a lot of people who were in very specific lockdown places wanted to move where weather was better, maybe. Um, and where things uh, were m- more interesting. And I think during that time, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of tech, a lot of, uh, individ- you know, a lot of people moved down to Florida um, and more importantly into Miami. And, you know, I think there's a couple of things going on in Miami that are really interesting. You have a mayor, Mayor Suarez, who is extremely active in the world of crypto. I think he's done such a fantastic job and is doing a great job of bringing tech in. But as more and more tech comes in, more and more money comes in, there certainly is a massive housing shortage and crisis happening right now because of the influx of people that are coming here for the opportunity and, and certainly the benefits that Florida and Miami give. So I think from that perspective, if I'm using it as a barometer, just as myself, you know, my wife and I have been looking for a house for six months and it's insanely difficult. 
So I think that there's a lot of people buying up. There certainly is a bubble happening. It's scary how high it's gotten because it does feel like San Francisco prices now for what you're paying. But I would expect that this stays like this a little bit. It's funny. I had a conversation with a friend of mine in Boston who's also kind of dealing with the same thing. And he thinks that there's going to be a big bubble um, happening here. But if I actually look at like the individuals and people that are showing up, like it's, it's, it's as easy to take a meeting within the world of, uh, of VC and tech and, and even culture as it would be in, in New York to some extent. Certainly the media, you know, media companies are not here. Um, you know, Heist and Body still has, you know, our big office in New York. And, but there are more and more people coming down here. And I think they're also attracting more and more people to come around these tech weeks. I think this week was actually one of them as well. Yeah, it kind of felt like that. I wasn't sure because it's starting to, and, and credit to the mayor and to a lot of the companies that are kind of establishing home bases down there that had roots and, and found a way to get down there and, and really sort of, you know, preach that gospel of tech and Web3 and, and make, make those meetings happen, to your point. I wasn't sure over the course of the last six, seven months. Now it feels more real. But if it was going to feel like a, like if it was like 2007 music conference week, just like on steroids a little bit, and it was going to be one of those like crypto bros and, and a little bit of just like uh, partying. But now to your point, getting a meeting with like somebody here in New York, it's just as easy. I'm getting just as many texts that are like, yo, you're in Miami this week. We should link up. And it's just like, man, you were in, I saw you in Brooklyn like a week ago. What are you doing down there right now? It's like, no, I live here. It's going to be, I think what's important for me is that what, the talent that's coming down here has to give back to the city and we need to be able to build infrastructure to allow for this to grow. If that's the case, you know, my wife is from here, so I'm here for the long haul, you know, um, and, and I, I want to see the city grow. I want to see not just the county, but also the counties around here and, and just make it attractive. And yeah, right now the housing crisis is quite difficult, you know, um, so they've got to, fi- they've got to figure that out. It's, it's to your point though, too, and this is a good segue. Right now, there's a lot happening in tech. And I think San Francisco being a place that I think a lot of people did leave during during COVID and even New York, I think a lot of people left, but they're coming back now. It feels like it was the opportunity for a lot of new places to pop up and kind of plant their flag and say, this is where the future is going to be happening. It's going to be beneficial to businesses, to the people that are most important to the ecosystem, to people starting new ventures. High Snobiety to sort of go back a little bit, but you're the co-founder of the, the huge part of the US expansion. Was that was the plan always kind of where we are in 2022, where it's this giant media brand that really touches all parts of culture? Or was the blog something early that just started to compound and kind of grow into this naturally grow into this fit of where it is now? What was that vision early on? Yeah, I, I think the way I love to describe, you know, the work that I did and David Fisher, um, who brought me on as co-founder, um, you know, many years ago was it was the opportunity to to tell it was the opportunity to tell stories, share things that were like out of the mainstream fold more than ever with people that could come together online. Right. And that's what the blog offered. The blog offered the opportunity for, you know, people all over the world to come together. You may not be in the same city, but you're also kind of into the same thing. And it was amazing to be able to interconnect with people like that, you know, just, and again, through the online world where, you know, um, communities could come together in that sense. What's interesting is that like, we did not follow traditional rules of, of typical startups. And certainly, you know, we had blogs that we were paying attention to that kind of were the forerunners of what we did and gadget um, gizmodo, you know, the tech side was the real first category to embrace uh, blogging as a technology and a platform, which I think plays very well into web three now, as we talk about platforms. So what, what David really understood was like, look, I got this blogging platform. I got, I can publish to it. And instead of like publishing about how I feel, I'm going to publish what I'm into. 
And very quickly, you just saw the numbers kind of increase. So for the first, what I like to tell people too is we also were very not traditional and not looking at metrics. So we didn't even really even look at metrics for the better part of the first five years. It was completely gut. And I think that was really important, right? So we just knew what we liked. David has an incredible savvy eye. By the way, for those that don't know, he's still every day like, you know, working, you know, looking through other, you know, other sites and properties and Instagrams looking for the next story. Yeah, and Dave, David, still the, cre- the creator and the founder of, of Heisen Baidu too, who's very much still involved. And, and it's part of the business now, oh, which, which has gone in a million different directions and literally to the point of like collaborating with some of the most important brands in streetwear, but also sure. kind of in like fashion and other in cafes in Paris. And like, I look at my wardrobe now, it has a Heisen Baidu. We just did, like but we just did Boston. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's funny. I was at a friend's house the other day. I saw a Colette shirt I hadn't seen in a while. We just did a Barbasso, which I think is super dope in Milan. If you know Milan, like it is the place where people would come together around uh, shows like Pitti, which were, you know, big fashion yeah. shows as an example. So, yeah. but yeah, it started as a blog. We use it as that technology for like the first many years. We just figure out how to monetize through selling ads ourselves. And I think we had a, a moment where like, you know what? Clearly somebody else can probably do it better. And I think for us, funny enough, it was about, you know, four or five years in the business. Let's start working with network partners. And I think that really brought us up to, you know, year nine where we, you know, year 10, where we took our first funding, you know, so we didn't really do our first round until a few years ago. And that was really to help us uh, accelerate the business and certainly accelerate e-commerce because we've been very good at helping brands, quite frankly, sell their stuff. You know, we can tell a very good story. We know our reader better than the, you know, most brands do. And, but at the same time, we also understand how they uh, connect with those brands and more than ever see them as, as trust sources. And I think that's important. You know, if you look at the, I think there was a poll done recently that said that um, uh, young consumers, especially like Gen X, like they, they trust a brand more than they do a politician. Right. So that tells us something really interesting. So our job is to continue to tell the great stories that we can work with great brands that we can. And, and deliver product that feels very much like us. And I think like, you know, you know, Barbasso as an example, or what we did with Colette are just examples of us really wanting to keep producing and outputting uh, amazing stuff and amazing stories. Certainly the focus of what we've done has changed and we have become a media brand uh, and quite successful one at that, to be honest. And, you know, it's, it's our job to, to, to keep, to keep our audience moving and Absolutely. more importantly, but, keep but, them informed. But curation is so much a part of that still too. And I think a lot of that gets lost when you think about where where technology goes. There was this wave of like three, four years ago where everything was like, AI is going to take over the world and, and we're not going to make our own decisions because the, the computer knows better. We've gotten back. I think COVID probably accelerated this a little bit and correct me if I'm wrong, where brands matter and the ability to curate a brand and somebody you can see around that turn and can kind of curate an experience really, really matters. High Sabaya does that really well. I think a lot of what you just spoke to with the Colettes of the world and even the Barbasos and these really relevant worldwide brands, which they find their home on a high snob or, or in somebody's closet or wherever it's going to work. There was always in like what I would call like the golden age of kind of streetwear, which was, uh, again, it's like in the early 2000s, this is graphic T-shirts and sneakers sure. and something that high snobiety covered so intently and was so a part of my life and so many people around our age's life back then. Some of those brands still exist, some don't. Right. But when you see Web3 projects now, I think a lot of the big projects, and the big NFT projects in particular that come out, they have this energy around them and this feel that right. to me feels a lot like what like 2008, 2009 New York felt like. And you have all these brands that were starting to pop up and create these sort of cult followings. What do you think was the most important brand during that era? You know, Supreme has its own space. And I think a lot of the big brands that people recognize now that are still around have their own space. 
But I think about some of these brands have the opportunity to do like big Web3 projects because they have so much nostalgia. What do you think was the most right. important brand back then that really hit a chord with you personally? I, so the advantage I had was that I could travel, right? And I think that COVID stopped that for a lot of people. So, you know, yeah. definitely get out there and travel. So before things really popped off with social media, like you had to go to cities around the world and interact with people, individuals, shops. So for me, quite honestly, the most important brands of that time in my mind um, were probably brands that were part of, of shops because of how they curated, right? So for me during that time and the brands that I still love today, Pata in Amsterdam, A Life in New York, you know, the stuff that Atmos was doing. Um, but in terms of brands, you know, I think it's the world of Japan just opened up doors to creativity that we've never seen before by the amount of output and reinterpretation of what was happening in the West that just made a lot of the stuff that was in the West better. So for me, you know, there's really sort of niche underground streetwear brands like, you know, Bounty Hunter out of Japan. Killed which, it. Bounty you know, Hunter a, killed is a, it. It's a brand that still does, you know, Hello Kitty collabs that my daughter wears, you know, and these brands stay very core to who, you know, in, in, in Bounty Hunter's case and in Pata's case, and in A-Life, they stay very core to um, who they are and where they came from. And it, it's, I think that's, the, and I, I'm not going to use the word authenticity, but I think that ability to stay true is, is very difficult today. And comes from a place of being born pre-web, right? Yeah. And being able to look at community differently. Because today when you build a brand, you're not thinking about the same things that a brand thought about in 2008. In 2008, it was a lot more about exclusivity, right? It was a set number of retail doors or shops around the world that you wanted to show up in. And if you showed up in that, in those stores, you were aligned with the very best brands in the world. And that, that was, that was sort of the hook. And that wasn't a Zoomies or a PacSun or a Target. These were very small targets that brought in a very distinct clientele into it. So and true. the web, you know what I mean? And, and to find those stores was to find the culture of a city or at least one aspect of a culture of the city. And I found that to be interesting, right? You know, if you're down with the A-Life crew, you, there's certain music and sounds that you're into, you know, and I found that to be very interesting. Today, nah, it's agree, much more dude. broad. The, it, you know? It's one of those things where like, I try and explain what A-Life was and, and this, having the brick and mortar closed was like a very weird nostalgic thing for me. It felt kind of strange to watch it happen, but that brand is still in my mind, like creatively as strong as it was back then. But trying to explain to people that like, how cool it felt to be like invited to the backyard at a life for like totally. a concert. And you're talking yeah, yeah. about like Drake performing. Now, like, now it's like the whitelist. If I can get yeah, invited to the whitelist, that's exactly like, it. I'm, I'm having a good time. Yeah. You know? And, and then, it's, it's just different. It feels different. And I don't want to be that guy that goes like, it was way better in 2008, 2009. You had to kind of be in the know, but being invited in is, is it's all the same dynamics now. And I think I want to use that as kind of like the segue into Baratza and into, into your sure. new venture now and to kind of where you're headed in, in the space. And we had, we had Bobby Hundreds on a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, the Hundreds to me was always a brand that felt prime to like last forever. Because Bobby, to the same point of, of High Snob, on it early with the blog, really got a community built from the ground up, made people care about the mascot and kind of the vision of the company, not just the vision of the clothes. And I think that to see Adam Bomb Squad, their NFT project do really well, seemed like obvious to me. But when you have a brand that comes to you now, and I want to hear a little bit more about Barata and what the vision is. But somebody comes to you and has great IP or has like a nostalgic brand or something that's been around for that 20 year run, but really needs sort of a, a kick in the ass a little bit for something new for this new type of consumer, but they have great IP. What's the first thing that you tell them? And what's the vision for a company like Barata who works with a brand that already exists right now? Yeah. So, so Barata very simply is just, 
you know, a Web3 practice. And we, we tend to use this term translating IRL dreams into metaverse realities. It's a bit of a joke, but it really is us helping brands, partners, um, friends uh, understand what's going on in Web3 and more importantly, where they can fit in and kind of plug in. And in my mind right now, it's essentially two different ways. Like you can plug in from a marketing perspective to get involved in a campaign or a project, or you can become a little bit more um, uh, transformative where you're really changing your business, which I think is what the hundreds did. Extremely transformative moment using Web3. So what broad, you know, what we do is um, essentially do strategy and help connect uh, you know, our clientele with the best partners out there. And that's really what we do, you know, advising and helping them go down that road. So what we'd like to focus on is what's happening in the metaverse. We love focusing on and what's happening in wearables. Of course, what's happening with fashion. We think there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, and we're obsessed with each of those as well as tokens being utility into uh, future conversations and, and what you can incentivize and how you incentivize a user. So that that's what we do. And we've done work for, you know, we've done work for everybody from, um, from Levi's, uh, uh, to BBC and, and and plenty of others, and we have lots of the pipeline. We don't necessarily ourselves launch projects. We're just there to really help um, bring good partners together. And I think that's what's interesting about what came out of Web three. Excuse me, what came out of Web three, as well as what came out of the world of streetwear. The the hooks of how you get a project in front of somebody is not that different than what came out of that two thousand era. 2008 era of street where they talk about and what you're seeing now. And I think what's really interesting is that brands can begin to get involved by plugging and playing into products that already exist. And I think that's super dope. And it's an, it's a very friendly and trusted way for brands to get involved. And I think that's interesting where, you know, six months ago, eight months ago, brands were like, well, I got to build a metaverse. I have to show up. Yeah. And what's more interesting to me now is people are going to build metaverses. There's going to be metaversal experiences. And I think there's going to be, um, brands and businesses that understand how to do that better than others. Yeah. For other brands, I think it is a little bit of a waste of time to go and try to build your world where it may be a lot more fun to go over and talk to the other verse guy, you know, other side guys and see what they're doing. And so I think what's really cool is that the model of collaboration is just, it's, it's really unexplored, but it's essentially the same as to what worked during that phase of streetwear, which is collab brands need to collaborate together. That was that was one of those things too, and you feel like you f it looks like you know Nike jumped in kind of early. It felt like a lot of, or early relative to other brands, but it felt like a lot of brands were kind of placeholding like six, seven, eight months ago even to the point sure. where they knew they needed some Web three or some metaverse presence, but weren't a hundred percent sure what it would or what it should be. But when you see a strong community, people that are really down to 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 take that journey, know that there's a 10, 15, 20 year plan potentially, but be a part of it. The brand is kind of stronger than the project at that point, and that's where I see like a lot of opportunity right now. And I bring up these streetwear brands and the nostalgia associated with it. And the question I have really is, do you think that, that the Nikes of the world have the advantage right now, or is it in the hands of creators who are building it from the ground up? This does feel like that's a loaded question, but it does feel like a real shift in the dynamic of the way people trust individual brands versus the giant conglomerate at this point. It's such, it's such a, it's a, it's a very good question, right? Because I think on one side, you still have a, a, a tremendous number of consumers out there that have no idea what Web3 is. Right. They have no idea what an NFT is. They see these things selling for uh, astronomical numbers and are wondering why. They're still asking why. And, you know, what I think a lot about is like, what can we do to get them to understand, right? So is it putting in front of them an artifact Nike monolith box that opens up to reveal 
an amazing sneaker that you can change the color of. And as you change the color of, you're actually making it scarcer because you're running out of, you know, the formula, as they say, you know, it, that's a lot. That's a mouthful for somebody to understand. A regular person. How, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like how, a, how, a, how a digital shoe can start becoming rarer as you change, you know, so I think we need to get to a place where like the average person understands. And I think that comes through utility. We need to show more examples of it. And I think there's going to be two sides to it, right? There's the tech, there's tech on one side, design on the other, then you have like culture in the middle and culture is trying to figure out both sides. You know, people yeah. on the street are like, this is creative and cool, but the tech is, you know, so we need to get to a place where that gets stronger. I think Nike definitely made a, a pretty strong call by locking up arguably the best, uh, you know, design shop out there making products similar to theirs. And, you know, let's also be honest about it. Like Nike is doing their best to control their IP as hard. So, you know, on the artifact side, they may, may have well been thinking of the same thing. Like, well, these guys are, may try to, you know, they may try to stall us. We might as well work. And I think that yeah. is a great, and I think the the output's cool because the art is one side, but then the mechanics of how that drop works are the other. But the average person doesn't understand mechanics. They need, they need examples that make sense to them in, in every ordinary every ordinary day life. And uh, I think those are coming. Yeah, and I'll give it to Nike for, for you know, there's a, always the conversation of do I buy it or do I build it for any company or anyone starting something new, even for big companies. So they saw a shop in Artifact that they essentially bought for the for the design shops and for the projects they were already working on. So instead of trying to like make it a Nike NFT from the ground up, they had a bunch, they they bought legitimacy in my mind in the design community. They bought something that people really recognize as, sure. as being on a wave that mattered. And instead of trying to say like, it's Nike, 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 it was Artifact with Nike and it was Clone X and it was, it was you know, you get to Takashi right. Murakami that kind of backs into a Nike deal basically. You do something where- it It's all about, it's all about the network, of course. Yeah. It's all about the network. It's all yeah. about the mesh and- I mean, if you look at, let's use Nike again. Like if you look at Nike's alignments, it's very clear. Like they're very, they're very considered compared to others. And if I can be as frank as I can, tend to have an aesthetic eye that's better than most in, in alignment. And I think that's because of the people, that's not because of Nike, that's because of Nike and how they hire. They have incredibly um, creative people on the inside. So it, it makes sense. With that said, they did shop around for a while. They were definitely looking for an in-house shop to help them. Uh, pull the trigger on something that they have been working on for some time. So, yeah. But to your, you know, you had a question earlier around like streetwear brands getting involved. I think there is, if you use Bobby and the Hunter's Eyes example, not only was it transformative, in some ways it like has completely reshaped, if not saved their business and the ability to adapt. And they were smarter than most, you know, and I think there's going to be a, and, and they understood it. By the way, I think Sotheby's and Christie's also understood it too. Like Agreed. they had to get involved in order to ensure that they still had their hands on the art market, regardless of where relevant. the art market shows up. It's a, it's, you know? it's we're in a world where re chasing relevance. You you can if you're just chasing it from behind and you go, we have to do something. But then a, a year passes. There's not enough. You have to move way way quicker now, and you have to and you have to right. ab abandon some of the legacy look and feel sometimes to do that. To know that you're going to be around in the future. I think the hundred did that well. To your point, the the what was once looked at as these staunchy old auction houses when they came out and they're auctioning you know a Beeple NFT. Or even they, this happened when they were auctioning Banksy's early on. It just looks like a thing, like, oh, you're just chasing a trend. But in reality, that's just that's recognizing that the the needs of consumers are changing. And if the digital world is going to be here to stay, which it certainly is, in my sure. opinion, and to a lot of opinions, you have to you have to move with them. You can't force your opinion and what you think is, is an asset or should be curated on anybody else. You have to let the users tell you, basically, which they did really well. They've definitely done a fantastic job of using it as a way to connect and make their community stronger. There's just no, you know, 
I think textbooks are going to be written around this story of how they were able to do it. So Agreed. Agreed. it's in, it's in, it's energized their business It's energized uh, their teams. And yeah, man, it's, it's really cool to watch. And I think more brands will get in there. I agree. I agree. And it is to, it is to your point, you brought it up too, is the idea that we have to move from tangible to digital. Right. And there's a lot of people who do it really well, tangibly, and especially in like early 2000s to, to 2010s, like the hundreds was this brand that like the hundreds t-shirt drops that was selling out on like, Digital Gravel and like all these random websites back then. Digital I'm Gravel. Myself. I'm dating myself right you. now by bringing wow. this stuff up and like Karma Loop all of a sudden. A classic ecom play. Nah, I killed, like that's when ecom was like this brand new thing. Now Web three is the brand new thing, and you can't chase it. You have to do it, do it, you know, for real. But a lot of people, even listening to this, we're talking like a different language. Talking about Artifact and Nike buying a design shop that does a Web three project. But you're also somebody who really understands collectibles, the tangible piece. And that's everything from cards to, you know, you understand art, but also anyone that follows you on Instagram has that, that has for a while has seen like a lot of like really awesome and unique vintage sort of clothing and real wearables, not digitals. And that's everything from like the military stuff. And then you've been a huge, huge, you're, I would call you a denim expert, somebody who really understands Thanks, man. I denim, love denim and jeans yeah. in such a way that it's more than just what you're wearing. It's a story behind it. Fashion as an asset class and as an investment, Birkin bags aside, and some of the things that are obvious, has never really been part of like the big money collector, most relevant front of the auction house type of conversation. Do you think that like a bolt of denim or a pair of jeans from a specific era that will never be made before, is that something that you look at as, as an investment piece, as an investable asset class, or is that something that you still feel like is looked at as fashion? This is a fantastic question. I mean, it, 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 I, I think I look at it in all of those ways. I'm a fan. If I look specifically at denim, there's a story for me around American history and, you know, what the working class did to, to put this world together, you know. And I think if, there, if you look at brands that are beyond iconic in the world, you got to put Levi's on that list, if not at the top. Not you know, sure. it's like Levi's and McDonald's, I guess. You know, everyone wants, the, you know, but unlike McDonald's, everybody wants Levi's jeans. And I think everyone has. So it's been this icon of, of, of American culture and fashion. And I think that's what I'm obsessed about. Um, do I collect denim that's made on mills that don't exist in the United States anymore? For sure. Like that's super <laughs> nerdy, but you know, I'm buying up denim all the time that comes off of old assembly lines. And to be honest, some of them are worth big money. I think, you know, just to get deep, I think a, a, a classic pair of, you know, 1940s, 1950s Levi's that are dead stock should be a security that rally locks up um, because these things sell for 15, 20, 30, $50,000. And right crazy. now I think that it's, it's very, it's very niche, but it's also super dope. And yeah, everything starts I, I think niche. It, everything starts like that too. You know what I mean? Like everything starts niche until it's not anymore. That's just how it goes. Right. And I would say that in terms of liquidity, I think they're fairly liquid, man. Like you can move a lot of good denim moves on eBay. A lot of vintage denim moves quickly on eBay. So, but in terms of like an investment class for the average person, no. I think if you're diversifying using a product like Rally, yeah, it'd be. I would love it, and not just denim jeans, you know, vintage uh, denim jackets as well. So, um, but it's, it's yeah, it's history, man. It's, America, it's so cool. true, man. It's like it's American history, it's Japanese history. It's got so many roots and so many cultures that have been so right. important for design and fashion. That to me, it's something that like my girlfriend's super, super deep in the, in the denim game right now. I haven't been able to sort of. Uh, to find time to do the research. But now I'm at a point, like especially talking to you, I feel like it's a must at this point. But certainly like in terms of tangible collections. We, we all have so much, they, they t they're not the same space that like a baseball card takes or a slapped card, you know what I mean? But yeah. I mean, it's fun, dude. I mean, do I, 
it's a small part of my collection that I'm just very fond of. You know that's the I mean? thing too. You, you collect everything. And that's like, to me, it's all part of this culture. And that's, that's, that to me is like the culture of collecting is the culture of just, it's every day. It's the relevant stuff. It's the things that find their way in the group chats. It's the things people are talking about. I feel like there's an asset class and like a niche for everyone. And the thing that they have pride in that they want to talk about. Sure. And that's kind of the, the most important asset classes that kind of pop out of that are the ones that get the most conversation, have the most liquid conversation, not just the most liquid market. And denim feels like yeah. vintage vintage in general just feels like it's right about it's having that moment and it's been having that moment, but it feels like it's starting to get attention from people I never expected to be paying attention to, which is why I asked. Um, and on that note too, with the, the way conversation moves, I got to bring up Clubhouse um, a little bit. So for anyone listening that doesn't know, Clubhouse is this audio app. It was the, It was basically like, the fourth of the social media platforms. And it had this insane moment in 2020. It was in right. beta, had millions of users, had some of the most interesting conversations happening in these rooms that felt and looked a lot like chat rooms from, from AOL from the, from the late 90s, early 2000s, but were done in such a way that it was audio only. Jeff was part of this group really early on that was really part of the creator class on that platform with, uh, with, with his, his room, let's call it, his clubhouse called Culture Club, which was him. Ben Dietz, a great group of people who really could see around turns and would curate amazing conversations. So anyone who was anyone who would wind up on the Clubhouse app, and it's on Twitter Spaces now too, it's still going strong, uh, would have been in this room having the conversation with Jeff. And this is everybody from Naomi Osaka to Grimes to Snoop Dogg to anytime Virgil Abloh was talking on Clubhouse, it was likely in the Culture Club room. And he was our fifth host. The team. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Anyone who was important in culture would be there, but it was really important in, in general culture, not collecting culture or fashion culture. The people that were making the world move. You had four, you still have four million followers on Clubhouse, or part of that group that was really like the the preferential creators, part of that board of creators that was that was really bringing it to life. Now it's something that Twitter Spaces kind of took over that role. The Clubhouse valuation went to four billion dollars. It's something that necessarily, you know, has a valuation still, but not necessarily the cachet that it did. What do you think happened to Clubhouse? If I could, if I could phrase it like that, without taking a shot, because it is an amazing platform with a crazy, awesome team. But what do you think sure. happened to it that it doesn't exist the way it did in that crazy moment in 2020 anymore? As we come up on the two-year anniversary. Yeah, actually, I think even like 2021 was still quite strong. Okay. I think, uh, I think that the platform is still fantastic. It's still a place that I can still go and and have conversations and and bring people together. Um, I actually like sometimes just opening rooms uh, without putting Culture Club on and just having uh, a chat there. I think what you, I, th I think what we're seeing though is that it's not that all conversation moved. I think that a lot of the NFT conversation moved over to Twitter Space. That's true. Um, but the actual, the actual usage on Clubhouse is still uh, uniquely high. I think also it's also quite um, popular in non-English speaking countries as well as a as a way of connecting. But to what Rob's talking about, like we. We're very early on in the app. Um, it was myself, Ben Dietz, uh, Gian Delion, and Ruba Abunima, who's creative director of Tiffany's. You've seen all the work she's done uh, between Jay-Z, Beyonce, you know, the Tom Sachs. Ma ma a massive uh, New York name, too, like somebody that shows up in places everybody wants to talk to her. Yeah, and it was great because the three of us, the four of us could come together and just have a very honest, open conversation and invite people on. And, you know, we, we, you mentioned some of the names, but we also had conversations about, you know, uh, violence against Asians, uh, what was happening with George Floyd at that time. And it was just fantastic. And it still is very fantastic. And I think what you saw was that NFTs took over a lot of the cultural conversation, but it's, you know, we still love coming together and, and rapping and doing those shows. And, 
Um, I actually think Clubhouse is going to be stronger than ever in the next year, especially as they start adding features. But what you do see certainly is that the, the NFT conversation is living now on, on Twitter. And I think there's a reason for that, right? Twitter is a platform that allows you to post up links um, and, and certainly have uh, links that remain there for in perpetuity. So you can take a look. It's historical in that sense. And for people that already had an audience on Twitter, it made a lot of sense to, to migrate over there and start using it. So I think there's huge benefits to it. I think that the, the clubhouse community, the conversation has changed though. With that said, I saw Farouk last night with, uh, with, um, uh, thank you on, um, on, on clubhouse. So being nostalgic. So we'll see, man, I think people will throw back and quite honestly, to be fair, like I love Twitter, but I think clubhouse tools are, you know, they're just much better I, for, I for agree. holding for, conversation. For audio and for, for group conversation, that's a little less asynchronous. I feel like Clubhouse was always the place to be. And great moderators and great teams like you guys have on, on Culture Club are able to sort of curate incredible conversations in such a way that it feels way more like, you know, a, a late night talk show than it does a one-on-one Zoom. It just feels way more real. Yeah, we just wanted to have conversations that we wanted to have, you know, yeah. and... It, quite honestly, the majority of the stuff was unscripted. Like we, 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 one of the big advantages that we use was a back channel and still do use a back channel. And we just have a back channel between the four of us and just tee each other off. And, you know, I think that w- that's what great content comes down to is being able to work with people that are on the same vibe. By the way, here's a, speaking of a relic, here's a cassette. Yeah, tape. we got, oh, uh, anyone that can't see this right now, that's the, the t- if you had TDK 90 minute cassette tapes to record off the radio in like the late nineties, you were winning. Those are super expensive. It's sealed. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this in case and send it to rally. I like it. I like it. On that it. note, on that note, like we, we always want to end with a couple of questions, a lot of them around collecting. So a little bit rapid sure. fire, but, but more so around nostalgia. First one is, do you ever think flip phones will come back the same way you brought up that tape just now? Do you think flip phones have their moment again or is it done? Yeah, I think so. I think simple phones will be good. You can, you know, there's an action to it. And I think people miss that. Yeah, that's for the, sure. That's the move. What's the, uh, if you can say, what's the most expensive pair of jeans you ever bought? Uh, Levi's 501, 1966 model, all Japanese. So they were made in Japan, all labels, red tag, um, flasher pocket, like everything is in Japanese. You wear them or they're tucked away somewhere? No, no, I, I I wish I had a, you know what I am looking for? I have an eBay search for a worn pair so I can wear them. So nah, that's the okay. move. That's the move. So that's, that goes into your collector of everything. And this is for anyone who doesn't know Jeff, you know, on whether it's, you know, Jordan rookie cards or it's denim, he's got everything in between the tangible pieces. I feel like you're a, uh, you're a collector of all things. I What's the one that the one tangible collectible that you bought really well, you look back now and say that was a really smart spend. A really probably cause toys. I think I bought a lot of cause like vinyl figures because David was buying them Mm. and, and I started picking them up. I think that's been really good. Um, shit. That's a really good question. That's that you just hit it on though. That's the thing where it's always good to have someone around you that kind of, you can respect and you know, they see around the corners the same way you do. It's always good to sort of, uh, to, to jump on when you see someone smart doing something and say, I like this. There's something there. Let me, let me spend a little bit of money. That usually works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any asset that you can put on a shelf and show and have a story about, I think is super dope, right? So like Isn't vinyl, it? vinyl editions are like that. Photography is like that. Art is like that. Books is, are, are like that. So I, mm-hmm. I'm just a fan of objects. I love having, you know, my wife's much more of a minimalist than I am, but, but like, I love having pieces everywhere. So my absolute yeah. favorite thing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I have the same conversation with my girlfriend about what's in our apartment and what's not supposed to be in our apartment all the time. No question. Then the last one, too. You're 
you're a writer, you're a creator. As we talk right now, Elon Musk is, is buying Twitter, is in the process of buying Twitter. A year from now, you think it's a better or a worse place for creators? Wow, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I think it's always going to remain a, a really good place for creators to get their message out. Um, I'm just curious to see. I'm, I'm curious to see where the platform goes or if others are starting to think about where that story may go. Um, I'm hopeful that uh, right decisions will be made there. And um, yeah, I'm always positive. I think it, I, I think we're going to be okay. Do you think, and this is the real last question that I'll say, because it, it leads it leads off of that. In, in 2023, do you think yeah. the brand or the product is going to matter more? And and it's a really a Web3 question too, because great teams are going to be the ones that are, that are printing money right now. But do you think that the product that gets put out, the utility that goes with it, and any of the tangible goods that are associated with any of these brands that are putting out collectibles or putting out objects, do you think the brand's going to matter more or do you think that the product is still going to have its place? That's a great question too, Rob. I think brands are, are the they're the stewards of good product and their job your job as a brand is to bring great people into your brand to help you, you know, get things done, activate, think creatively. And the output of that is shown through the product. So for me, the product is still the most important thing. And more than ever, consumers want and connect with product and therefore connect with brands. So, you know, the product is a gateway into a brand and a brand experience and is your job as a steward of a brand to to, to offer your consumer many, many things that you haven't even thought about yet and interact with them in ways that you haven't even considered yet. And you may be using Web3 to do that, you know, and um, you're going to lead with something. And that product can be a physical product, to Rob's point. It can also be some sort of digital artifact or an NFT or some sort of token that has a different kind of value. And that's why actually I'll just leave with this. Like I'm obsessed with wallets, digital wallets, crypto wallets. I think they are the future of content creation. I think that's the future of where we're going to be spending most of our time uh, today. And there's just not enough utility within a wallet yet. Right now, wallets hold things, but they should be doing more. That's a great way, that's a great way to end it. And I completely agree. Jeff, thank you so much, my friend. Awesome gems throughout this Appreciate conversation. You, uh, catch up soon, man. Come back to New York. We miss you, dude. And that was episode four of The Best Money I Ever Spent with Jeff Carvalho. Hopefully you caught some of the gems that he dropped along the way there. I'll say if I ever started anything new in fashion or in art in particular, he'd be the first person I called. And actually when we started Rally, Jeff was the first cold email that I sent to try and get us on High Snob. When they finally covered us on the site, I was crying while walking down Broadway. That's a true story. I was so excited to see it in this publication that meant so much to me and meant so much to the culture that we were trying to build around. So that was a good moment. That said, make sure you give him a follow. He's got a lot going on. I mean that in the best possible way. Coming this week on Rally, two of the cultural moments of right now are packaged up as initial offerings. The first of which is a Topps Dynasty Formula One Max Verstappen card. That's a BGS 9.5. That's a $32,000 offering, $8 per share on Thursday, May 5th. F1 is absolutely taking over pop culture right now. So it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. Then Friday, May 6th, one of the NFT projects that I think caught a lot of people by surprise when the floor started to move. Our second Azuki NFT, which is number 8467. That's going to be a $75,000 offering. That's going to be $5 per share. The last one on Rally sold out in 90 seconds. So 
As a reminder, with all of this, do not listen to me or anyone for investment advice. Always do your own research and be sure to read the disclaimers on rallyroad.com before making any investment. All investments involve risk. This is no different. And past performance is never an indication of future performance. I'm Rob Petrozo. I'll be back next week with an episode with a Brooklyn native who is big in North Korea. I'll leave it there. It's going to be interesting. Until then, you can find us on rallyrd.com, rallyroad.com, at rally on Instagram, and at onrallyrd on Twitter. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything in between. Until next week.